Welcome, friends, to a history of the King James Bible podcast. To find more episodes and information, just go to our website, www.ahistoryofthekingjamesbiblepodcast.com. Now here is G.K. with the latest episode. The Godly Prince Welcome to part two of A History of the King James Bible podcast. In this episode, we will examine the childhood of James. Again, we start at the very beginning. The nature-nurture debate has been around for many years, and it can be said that the childhood of any person will go a long way towards shaping and defining their adult behaviour. I want to continue my examination of the life of James so we can attempt, as best we can, to build a picture of the man whose name now adorns the King James Bible. If I thought it could hold your attention longer, I would go even deeper than we are here. Now, certain people in my personal life will abhor that statement. They'll be thinking, there he goes again, explaining again and again and again, more than he needs to. However, I hope it's clear that I enjoy the subject at hand, but I'm aware that some will perhaps thinking, well, come on, get to the Bible bit, and I will. But if I skip to that, we would miss out on so much drama, so much intrigue, and seriously, so much of the background to the King James Bible, and therefore the reason for this series. Little Jimmy Stewart was less than a year old when he was last visited by his mother. Indeed, within the first two years of his life, his father having been murdered, his mother more or less exiled, he was effectively orphaned, but he was loved. And he was crowned King of the Scots. Well, almost crowned, as the crown itself was hovered above his tiny head, too small to wear the piece. But we are getting a little ahead of the story here. James was baptised on the 17th day of November, 1566. It was a lavish affair, for which his mother spared little expense, spending more than £12,000, that figure raised by taxation, and even more out of her own pocket. 12000 quid was an absolute fortune back in the day. Not like now, where you could get little change from that for a nice family holiday to the Caymans, or Mauritius, or some island paradise where one could throw a shrimp on the barbie. Ah, we can only dream, can't we? Okay, so you get the point. The outlay was huge. But the gifts sent by the King of France, the Duke of Savoy, and Queen Elizabeth I were fit for such an occasion. Elizabeth had sent her ambassador along with a gold font, bedecked with jewels and enamel work for the young prince to be baptised in. But word had got out about the piece and a robbery attempt was made on the ambassador as he made his way north to Scotland. But there was to be even more drama than this surrounding the baptism that demonstrates the strife that seemed to swirl around James, his family, and Scotland. The future king and future Protestants' baptism was a Catholic affair, which included all the ritual, rites, and regalia that goes with one, with one slight digression. His mother refused to allow the Archbishop of St. Andrews to spit into the bub's mouth, claiming that no pocky priest was spitting in Urban's mouth. You see, the Archbishop was disfigured by venereal disease. Good work, Mum. I'd have done the same. Furthermore, Queen Elizabeth's ambassador, 
a staunch Puritan, had to stand outside with others who were not of the Popish persuasion. Also, the Countess of Argyle, who stood in for Queen Elizabeth I as godmother and held the babe while a pocky priest baptised him, was rewarded for her service with a gift from Elizabeth, but was forced to do penance by the Scottish Church for taking part in the Roman ritual. Not only this, but the Englishmen who attended the dinner party afterwards felt they were being somehow mocked by the French in attendance, while others thought Mary was favouring the English over everyone else. Perhaps most significantly of all, Henry, Lord Darnley, James's father, didn't attend despite being present because he wanted to avoid not being presented the English as the king. Happy days. Happy days indeed, but worse was yet to come. There was a continuing wrestle for control of the nation, and it was heightened when only a week after the baptism, when Mary pardoned most of the conspirators involved in the murder of Rizzio, it seemed that Darnley's position was even more threatened now. Rumours swirled and washed around Mary and her husband. It was reported that Darnley planned to take control of the young prince, have him crowned and so be in charge of the nation. Mary was certainly on edge, but things changed in the new year. Darnley had got out of Dodge and went to stay in Glasgow. Early in 1567, he contracted smallpox and Mary brought him to the Kirkerfield estate on the south side of Edinburgh. Apparently, Darnley wasn't happy with his digs, but Mary insisted that he stay there. It might be worth noting this point. So while Darnley stayed in the Kirkerfield estate, she stayed with the Bonnie Wee Prince at the nearby Holyrood, Holyrood estate. During Darnley's recovery, Mary sometimes stayed in the room below his. Indeed, it was said that during this time the king and queen appeared happy. Darnley wrote to his father about the return of his health and attributed it to the good treatment he received. He wrote, I mean my love the queen, which I assure you hath all this while, and yet doth use herself like a natural and loving wife. I hope yet that God will lighten our hearts with joy that have so long been afflicted with trouble. As he wrote these words, Mary read the letter over his shoulder and kissed him lovingly. It was later said that Mary kissed him as Judas did the Lord his master, this tyrant having brought her faithful and most loving husband, that innocent lamb, from his careful and loving father to his place of execution, where he was a sure sacrifice to Almighty God. Now for me, this is probably hyperbole with respect to the biblical imagery, but as for the rest, I'm going to let you decide as the story unfolds. By the 10th of February, Darnley had fully recovered. That day, his wife Mary had visited him before returning to her Holyrood house digs to attend the wedding celebrations of her chambermaid. That night, Edinburgh awoke to a loud explosion. The blast came from the king's residence. His body and that of his man who shared his bedchamber were found out on the grounds. Clearly they had been murdered before the explosion. One witness stated, The blast was fearful to all about. Many rose from their beds at the noise and came in multitudes to gaze upon the corpses without knowing the cause. It soon became clear that James Hepburn, the Earl of Bothwell, and two others had strangled the king and his man in their beds, placed their bodies out on the lawn, and then detonated some gunpowder beneath the king's bedchamber and hoped it might look like there had been a terrible accident. 
Now, to this point, you may have noticed I've avoided including too many names and titles in this episode, because I think in podcast format, too many names and titles spoils the format somewhat. But let's remember this name, Bothwell, because very soon he will feature more in this episode. Also, another of those later thought to be involved in the murder plot was one Gilbert Kennedy, the fourth Earl of Castles. It's read Cassillis, but it apparently pronounced Castles. And I declare right now publicly that I am not a descendant of the fourth Earl of Castles. So moving on. Our witness noted about the bodies, neither were their shirts singed or their bodies burnt, nor their skins touched by fire. Whoops, big mistake right there by the conspirators if you expected us to believe they died in an explosion. Our friend Bothwell was the first to report to the Queen that the King was dead. She later wrote, We assure ourselves it was always dressed for us as for the King, meaning it was intended as much for her as for the King. She continues, For we lay the most part all of the last week in the same lodging, and was there accompanied with the most part of the lords that are in this town at midnight, and of very chance tarried not all night by reason of some mask in the abbey. Ooh, close call. I'm glad they all got out, and phew, thank goodness for those wedding celebrations just down the road. She goes on, We believe it was not chance, but God put it in our head. That is, to leave Kirkerfield and return to Holyrood. Investigations were soon underway to find the perpetrators, and indeed one person was hung on the flimsiest of evidence. Still, this did not satisfy the investigators, and rumours were abroad that Bothwell and two others were involved, and if Mary was not directly involved, she had foreknowledge. My research that I've done into this topic has shown that She perhaps did have foreknowledge of the events, if not directly involved. For safekeeping, Prince James was sent to Stirling Castle, where he would remain for some years under the care of the Earl of Mar and his household. Now, despite the emergency, the fact that princes be sent elsewhere to be raised in this era was not unusual, as it went some way to ensure the continuance of the lineage. Mary's instructions to Ma included the caveat that no noble be allowed in the presence of the prince if they were accompanied by more than two or three others. This would mean that any noble wanting to be in the presence of the prince would have to openly humble themselves to one and all. And I mean, what proud noble would want to go anywhere with such a small retinue anyway? The History of the King James Bible podcast is brought to you by Like Flint Radio. You can find them on the web at www.likeflintradio.com. That's www.likeflintradio.com. Now, let's return to a history of the King James Bible Podcast with your host, G.K. Now, for the sake of brevity, I'll skip over some of the events here, but the short version is this. Bothwell has his name cleared of involvement in the murder of Darnley, and Mary is encouraged to marry him. You see, Mary's popularity was on the wane. So here we go again, back to the future. A queen cannot rule without a strong man at her side. A supposition that I think Queen Elizabeth I proved not quite 100% accurate. But before another marriage, Mary had one more ace up her silken sleeve. Prince James Now control and possession of the young prince at this stage was of the utmost importance, so Mary rode to Stirling to visit her son. 
Those caring for him believed she had intended to leave the castle with him, so invoking Mary's own rule about the number of nobles allowed in James's presence, they thwarted any plan she may have had in leaving that place with the prince. Now this scuttled any other plan she may have had in using him to shore up her place in the hearts of her people. In point of fact, this was the last time that she would ever see her son, and there were rumours put about shortly after that she, that she had tried to poison him. The story goes that she tried to give him an apple, and he wouldn't take it, and it was thrown to a dog in whelp, and that the dog and all its pups had died. It was pure fiction, but now she was seen by some as the murderer of her husband and the attempted poisoner of her own son, the beloved prince and future king of Scotland. Anyway, three months after the murder of her husband, Mary marries Bothwell, and a month later they are on the battlefield at Carberry Hill, where the opposing forces known as the Confederate Lords were ranged against her and her new husband. I find propaganda a fascinating study, and I was not surprised to find evidence of it in my research for this project. On the morning of the 15th of June, 1567, while the 11-month-old Prince James was sleeping peacefully in his crib at Stirling Castle, his image as that of a small child praying beside his father's dead body for God's vengeance was displayed prominently on a banner at the Battle of Carberry Hill. You can see a drawing of this banner in the show notes for this episode at my website. There was little to no fighting at Carberry Hill that day as the opposing forces faced each other. It ended with Mary's personal surrender on condition that Bothwell go free. She was then imprisoned when in July, apparently five months pregnant, she miscarried twins. Then on the 24th of July, she signed her demission papers, abdicating, albeit being strongly encouraged to. And on the 29th of July, 1567, little Jimmy Stewart was crowned King James VI of Scotland. It was a Protestant coronation with John Knox preaching the sermon from Second Chronicles, where Josiah was crowned King of Judah, and his mother was put to death by the sword. Yes, Mr Knox, we get the significance. A regent was named to rule, since James was but a baby, and shortly after this, the Acts of Parliament which established the Scottish Reformation were passed. The following year, after a failed attempt to return to power, James's mother Mary left Scotland for the last time, and her fate was that as a guest of Her Majesty Lizzie I. For the first six years or more of his reign, there was civil war, murders, assassinations, turmoil and strife aplenty. But for the most part, James was shielded from it, carefully guarded within the walls of Stirling Castle. There, he was taken care of by the Countess of Mar, and a long list of people, most of whom are known. Among them were seven cradle rockers, kitchen staff, laundry staff, the three men appointed to sleep in his room, and the list goes on. Of some note is his wet nurse, Helen Little, whom he later in life accused of being a drunkard and the reported cause for him being unable to walk and having to be carried everywhere for the first six years of his life. This is also said to be the reason for his unusual gait and his preference to keep walking rather than stand still later in life. In 1571, James made his first public appearance since becoming king at the opening of Parliament. An observer noted his well-delivered opening address. My lords and ye other true subjects, 
We are convened here, as I understand, to minister justice, and because my age will not suffer me to do my charge by myself, I have given power to my grandsire as regent, and you to do, as you will answer to God and me hereafter. A rather sweet story from the same occasion gives us insight into the child beneath the crown. While fiddling with a small hole in the cloth on the table before him, he asked the Lord seated next to him where they were, as in, where are we? He was told they were in the parliament, to which he responded, well, there's a hole in this parliament. Perhaps it was somewhat prophetic, as less than a week later, some opponents to those who ran the nation for the young king stormed Stirling Castle. During the ensuing battle, his grandfather, the regent, was shot in the stomach. He was carried back into the castle where a five-year-old James watched as he lay dying, something he said he never forgot. As I've indicated, Scotland during James's childhood was riven with many events such as briefly touched on here. I'm not surprised to find that he admitted to being of a fearful nature. Another example of the strife is the death of the Earl of Mar, his grandfather's, re- his grandfather's replacement as regent. The Earl died within weeks of his appointment and was replaced with one of the leaders of the murderous gang who had killed Rizzio. Remember him? Mary's secretary? Well, one of his killers, James Douglas, the Earl of Morton, was put in charge of the nation. He was the fourth and last regent during James's minority, and he himself met a grisly end, being executed by the Scottish Maiden, a type of guillotine that was said to have been introduced into Scotland by none other than himself. Talk about sowing and reaping, man. Like most monarchs at the time, education was essential. It was said that James had a talent for languages. He was taught Latin before he could write in English. As an adult, he learned Greek and could speak French, Italian and Spanish. In 1574, a visiting envoy from England reported that he could read a chapter of the Bible from Latin to French and from French to English on the fly. With such skill, there was little that anyone could add to his translation. He had also danced for this visitor and sent his best wishes home with him for his cousin, Queen Elizabeth I, saying he felt more of a tie with her than with his own mother, who by this time was in England, under a loose form of house arrest, being a potential threat to the English throne. James's main tutor was a man named Buchanan, a noted Scottish humanist of the era with a wide knowledge of politics and religion. One pertinent point to note here is that Buchanan had taught him that his mother was an evil, adulterous woman who had murdered his father, so there was no holding back in the classroom by the sounds of it. Buchanan was also known to beat him. Imagine giving the king a belting for misbehaviour. Hard for me to comprehend. One story goes that while struggling with a fellow student over a sparrow, which James had wanted, the sparrow had been killed. Buchanan boxed James's ears, saying that what he had done was like a true bird of the bloody nest of which he was come. In later life, James did acknowledge his debt to his master, but I'm sure there must have been an emotional scar or two in place. Nevertheless, the express intent of his, educa- of his education was to mould him into an educated prince and a paragon of reformed Christianity, Buchanan himself having published on the subject. He held to the idea that the people had the right to remove a tyrant, so I'm guessing he had the best in mind for his pupil. 
something of note here too is that Buchanan did have this idea about uh, uh, if monarchs uh, step overstep their mark, the people have a right to the remove them. And th- that's going to be a bit of a theme as we move on uh, because it was said that James resisted this uh, this ideal. James had three or four other students with whom he was taught and a day in the life of the teenage schoolboy king started with Greek, then some Latin, and after lunch, in the afternoon, he would study logic, rhetoric, composition, arithmetic, and cosmography. It was said that there was tension between his tutors, all male, and the female members of the household. On the one side, his tutor wanting to draw him away from the clutches of the women, and on the other, the women having great care for the personal well-being of their charge. James was known to have deep affection for the Countess of Mar, whom he called Lady Minnie, and yet also a deep respect for Buchanan, whom he called Pater, or Father, in his letters that he wrote to him. As I pointed out earlier, It was said that James was known to resist Buchanan's teaching concerning the right of the people to remove a tyrant, and that he could be a difficult student, who even at a young age seems to have had his own ideas as to the workings of the relationship between a monarch and his people. Even at a young age, James had a fear of being in the presence of armed men. Whispers abounded that he was under threat of kidnap, and despite the fact that he loved to hunt, he shut himself safely up in Stirling Castle. This is not to say that he never left Stirling. In fact, yearly he undertook a public tour throughout the kingdom, touring a different part each year. This was good for him in a couple of ways. First, it allowed his subjects to see the king who until now had not been seen often in public. Also, it helped with his finances, since whoever hosted the king while on tour paid for everything. Sounds good to me. I hope I've given enough hints during the course of this and the previous episode to the fact that this was an age of treachery and struggle between opposing groups who would do almost anything to have control of the king and therefore the nation. There were struggles between the pro-Catholic anti-English faction and the Protestant somewhat English-friendly faction. With James entering his teen years, he was seen to be under the influence of the Papist. Indeed, relations became so strained with England, who accused the Papist faction of using Scotland as leverage to draw England back toward Rome, that at one point James refused a letter from his cousin Queen Elizabeth I because he knew it would be full of unwelcome advice. The ructions continued until the king was retained by the old nobility until good order was restored. The intent here was the removal of the French Papist influence. This was not the end of the waxing and waning of factions that circled around the young king, and I offer it as an example of what James endured, and indeed, if we look at the lives of many monarchs from this era, they all had these kinds of factions swirling around them, all reaching and hoping for access to the king or queen, and the power, prestige and riches that went with it, for the most part. This is not to say that young James was at the whim of the lords, in fact he was known to get his way, but like all of us, I believe he was influenced by others up to a point. And again, like many of us, if others are confirming what we already believe, we can get a little carried away with it all. For example, remember I told you about his teacher Buchanan's humanist ideal, that the people should have the right to remove a tyrant? Well, after James resisted the return of the old guard, because that was unsuccessful, by the way, I guess I should have pointed that out earlier, he installed his own new order, 
those with ideas about kingship that I believe he rather took to. He soon ordered all copies of his old schoolmaster's work, De Jure Regni, called in to be revised and reformed by his newly installed secretary. If you were caught with an unauthorised copy, you could be imprisoned and receive a 200 quid fine, a fair bit of coin back in the day, I imagine. Furthermore, in May 1584, the newly installed government declared James head of state and head of the Scottish Church, something the Church was not exactly over the moon about. At this point in our narrative, James is only 18 years old, and I can't help but wonder, how would I have been at 18 years old if I was in his situation? Head of the Church, head of state, and these factions swirling around me. Yes, I know I'm using that word a bit, but that's how I see it. Factions swirling around me trying to get control of me, trying to get my attention. For a good description of James at 18 years old, I'm going to turn to a short reading of a book that I've used in my research for this episode, Alan Stewart's The Cradle King. So here's a small reading from that book that gives a description of James at this point in time at 18 years of age. During the summer of 1584, M. de Fontenay, Ambassador of Henry III of France, spent some months in James's court. Like every other ambassador, his first task was to send home a pen portrait to his paymaster. But Fontenay possessed a rare insight into James's character. His observations revealed to us not only the 18-year-old James, but the James of the next 40 years. His opening remarks were wholly admiring. He is, for his age, the first prince who has ever been in this world. He has three parts of the soul in perfection. He grasps and understands quickly. He judges carefully and with reasonable discourses. He restrains himself well and for long. In his demands, he is quick and piercing and determined in his replies. Fontenay was particularly impressed by James's lack of bias in debates a characteristic that was to be of great significance later in his career when he frequently entered into public controversies. Of whatever thing they dispute, whether it be religion or anything else, he believes and maintains always what seems to him most true and just, so that in several disputes on religion I have seen him take the cause for Monsieur de Fentre, a Roman Catholic, and defend him constantly against his adversaries, although they were of the same belief as he. He is learned in many languages, sciences and affairs of state, I dare say more than all those of his kingdom. In short, he has marvellous spirit, for the rest full of virtuous glory and good opinion of himself. Although generous, he wrote, James was highly competitive and if he saw himself surpassed in exercises, he abhors them ever after. Somewhat prudish, the king hates dancing and music in general, as likewise all wantonness at court, be it in discourses of love or in curiosities of habits, with one particular phobia, not being well about to see above all errings. Fontenay did have, however, some reservations, James, he wrote, did not often dare to contradict the great lords, and yet he likes very much to be considered brave and to be feared. This he put down to the king's having been nourished in fear. 
a phrase that beautifully captures James's coward existence through the first 18 years of his life. His ways for want of being well instructed are very rude and uncivil in speaking, eating, manners, games and entertainment in the company of women, perhaps inevitable in one raised in a remote castle full of men. Fontenay was also one of the first to recognise and comment on James's disability. He never stops in one place, taking a singular pleasure in walking, but his gait is bad, composed of erratic steps, and he tramps about even in his room. This feature, remarked upon throughout James's life, has never been properly explained. If we discount the drunkard wet nurse scenario, but might have been exacerbated, if not caused, by a riding accident. As Fontenay notes, the king likes hunting above all the pleasures of this world, remaining there at least six hours together chasing all over the place with loosened rain. He has a weak body, but in no wise delicate. In short, to tell you in one word, he is an old young man resembling the sirens of Socrates. In his assessment of James's grasp of government, Fontenay proved to be almost prophetic. I have only noticed in him three things very bad for the preservation of his state and the government of the same. The first is his ignorance and lack of knowledge of his poverty and little strength, promising too much of himself and despising other princes. The second, that he loves indiscreetly and inadvisedly in spite of his subjects, against his subjects' better interests. The third is that he is too lazy and too thoughtless over his affairs, too willing and devoted to his pleasure, especially hunting, leaving all his affairs to be managed by the Earl of Arran, Montrose and the Secretary. I know well that this is excusable at his young age, but it is to be feared that continuance will confirm him in this habit. Indeed, by the time James reached England 20 years later, the habit was unbreakable. Fontenay felt so strongly about this issue that he challenged James on the matter. James replied very secretly that he would guard well against such misfortune because no affair of importance ever happened of which he did not know, although he did not seem to. And although he spent much of his time hunting, he could do as much business in one hour as others would in a day because simultaneously he listened and spoke, watched and sometimes did five things at once. Moreover, James boasted, nothing was done secretly by the lords that he did not know by means of having spies at the doors of their rooms morning and evening, who came and reported everything to him. In conclusion, Fontenay wrote, He is a true son of his mother in many things, but principally in that he is weak in body and cannot work long for his affairs. But when he gives himself to it, he does more than six others together. Indeed, sometimes he has wished to force and keep himself six days continually at accounts, but that immediately after he never fails to be ill. He told me that on the whole he resembled the Jeanettes, small horses, of Spain, who have only a brave course, otherwise the continuation carries them away. In one aspect, however, James's sympathy for his mother was less than total. At one thing, only I am astonished confided Fontenay. He has never inquired anything of the Queen of her health or her treatment, her servants, her living and eating, her recreation or anything similar. 
and nevertheless I know that he loves and honours her very much in his heart. Fontenay had reason to worry about James's affection for Mary, as the months ahead would prove only too dramatically. Well, I certainly hope you found that interesting. I think it sets us up very well for the next episode. So join us next time as we discuss the James of the next 40 years. If you'd like to learn more about this episode, go to our website, a history of the King James Bible Podcast.com. There you'll find reference to the works reviewed in the production of this series. You will also see any relevant graphics and also find credits to those who have helped us in the production of this series. If you'd like to contact me, you can email me at gk at likeflintradio.com. A History of the King James Bible Podcast is brought to you by likeflintradio.com. So visit our sister website, www.likeflintradio.com. Okay, so that's it for now, and until the next episode, God bless and hooroo. The Sirens of Socrates. Socrates, not Socrates. (laughs) I'm going to leave that in there. No, don't. (laughs) The Sirens, is it Sirens or Sirens? Because that's Soggy Bottom Boys. (laughs) Sirens. I think it's Sirens. This is going on the outtakes. (laughs) Resembling the sirens of Socrates. (laughs) It's sirens of Socrates. Sirens of Socrates.